1 Samuel chapter 10 is where we find ourselves tonight. So again, as we get into the narrative, basically we're introduced in last week for, um, um, if you've missed maybe some of where we are in 1 Samuel, I'll kind of catch you up to speed just, just quickly. But God is going to introduce the first king of Israel, a guy by the name of Saul. Now, God's intention for the nation of Israel is that they would never have a king. God's intention for Israel is that they would have a certain kind of government. What would it be? A theocracy. That's a government that was um, governed by God. The word Israel, the name Israel, means governed by God. And so God's intent for his people was that he would be their king, that he would, that he would guide and lead their country, and that Israel would, would be governed under a theocracy. We will be, and this type of government, we'll see this in the millennial reign. We'll see this throughout eternity, where God's perfect government, perfect rule and reign will, will um, last during the, the millennium, the thousand-year reign of Christ, right after the seven-year tribulation period. It says that we will rule and reign with him um, for a thousand years, and we'll, we'll see this perfect government, perfect societies, where, where everything is right, no more excuses, no more, you know, I grew up in a bad way, I grew up in a, you know, government's bad or oppressed or all the things that are going on. So, um, um, and God's intention was that. What's interestingly enough, even though God's intention was for Israel never to have a king, it, when you read the Old Testament law of Moses, you find where God put in the law of Moses provisions for what the nation would do once they had a king. And, and so I think they, you know, God knew they would ask for a king and his intention was to give them King David as their king. Now, King David wasn't yet born at this day or he wasn't ready or he was close to being. And if he was, he was just a young boy, uh, maybe a couple years old. And then Saul's going to reign for a few years. And then when David is anointed king, he's still a teenager um, in the next narrative. But God's, God's choice for the first king of Israel was David. And David would um, be in the direct line of Jesus. You know, we read in Matthew, right, last week that the, the Pharisees or those that knew Jesus was Messiah called him son of David. And son of David is a, is a Jewish term that means Messiah, that, 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 that the one that God promised in, in um, 2 Samuel chapter 7 would, would be Messiah, that the line from David would come to Messiah and they would call Jesus the son of David. So we get this first guy, um, um, Saul, and I'm just, again, going to tell you about Saul. Saul is a terrible person. Is that a bad thing to say? Is that a bad way to put it? He, his, his narrative, his character, his history, he's a bad guy. He really, really, in the Bible stories, the narrative of the Bible story, is a bad guy. He, what's interesting, though, enough, is that in the life of um, Saul, he starts out really well. You wouldn't know that if, if we just read through the next couple chapters and stopped. In the next couple chapters and what we've read so far, we're going to find lots of good qualities about Saul. He's going to make wise decisions. He's humble. He's, he's, he's Christ-like in so many ways. You read things and, 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 and Saul, in, in the beginning of this narrative, he's a type of Christ. And you think, man, well, isn't, isn't David supposed to be the one that's a type of Christ? And, and how is it that Saul recorded? And as you really go through this with a magnifying glass, you'll see places where Saul is is, is exactly like Christ. He is very, very Christ-like. And then his life turns, and it gets so wicked that, that, that the king of Israel goes into the temple of God and murders all of God's priests. And, and then he goes and he consults demons and devils 
for wisdom and for advice. Now, again, spoiler alert, how is it that, that Saul is a type of Jesus in the beginning and so bad in the end? When you put the entire narrative together of Saul's life, Saul is an Old Testament type of what? Anybody? He's not Christ. He's Antichrist. So Saul is an Old Testament type or picture of Antichrist. And what's interesting is now he's not the Antichrist or an Antichrist, right? Remember, First John says that there'll be many Antichrists. There'll be types of Antichrist. So what we see over the years and throughout history, as John tells us in First John, there'll be many Antichrists or types of Antichrist or the, 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 the spirit of Antichrist. You know, you could say you can look at Hitler. You can look at a lot of different people who had the, the, the makings and the spirit of Antichrist. And Saul is, is one of those in the Bible. He's a biblical narrative. He's somebody who um, has all the qualities of the Antichrist. He's, he's handsome. He's tall. He's, he's, he's charming. You know, the Antichrist is not going to have horns and a tail and a pitchfork. The Antichrist is going to have a $10,000 suit. And when he smiles, his teeth are going to go ting from the whiteness on his teeth. And and, and seriously, and when he talks, you know, he, he's going to wow crowds because of his elegance and because of his wisdom and because his, his ability to solve major problems that are going on politically and, 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 you know, with the world exploding with natural disasters. And, and the Antichrist is going to be a very sharp fellow. That's why you can be positive that the Antichrist is not Obama. Because the Antichrist is going to be very sharp. And he's going to be well put together. And so we see that in the life of Saul. And then he's going to, um, and the Jews are actually going to believe for a season that the Antichrist will be um, the Messiah. They're, they're going to believe that he's going to be the Savior and that he's going to fit the narrative for him. And they're going to believe that all the way until when? Until the three and a half year mark of the tribulation when the Antichrist enters the rebuilt uh, temple in Jerusalem and does what? And he makes abomination of desolation. He, he sets himself up as God and demands that he be worshipped. And at that point, the Jews are going to realize that this, this very charming, very handsome, very elegant fellow is in fact not, the anti, not Jesus or not the Messiah, not Jesus, not the Messiah, but that he is, they've been duped and they're going to run. And they're going to leave Israel at that time, the Bible says, and they're going to flee to a place um, near there somewhere. We don't know. We believe that place to be a city in Amman, Jordan called Petra. And we're going there And this trip in November. When we go to Israel, we, we always take a three-day extension somewhere. And this particular time we go to Petra. I've been once before. And, and it's an amazing, um, amazing place. It has this entrance that's, I don't know, it's probably maybe the width of this room this way. And it's 40 feet tall on either side of rock. And, it, and it's 200 yards long. And that's the entrance into it. The only way in or out. And then it opens up into this huge area that, that could hold a couple million people. And so it's very possible that the fulfillment of where the Jews go in the tribulation is um, to the city of Petra. It's funny, when you go there, we had a Jewish guide. or well, Actually, when we get to Petra... We have, we have to leave our Jewish guide and we, we pick up an Arab guide. And so it doesn't necessarily mean that he's Muslim, but he could be. But you oftentimes there, there are, we have an Arab guide for the, the, the part of the tour that goes through Amman, Jordan. And the, the guide was telling us, and I was playing dumb, and he was saying, um, 
you know, all the time, you know, Christians come here, people come here and they leave tracks and literature like hidden in the rocks and in the stuff and Bibles. And I, and I said, why do you think they do that? That's so weird. You know, knowing that that is a little weird because that what they're doing is they, they believe the Jews are going to go there in the middle of the tribulation. They're going to get one of their tracks and then realize that it was Jesus and the Messiah and they're going to get saved. But they're not going to need help with the track at that point. But um, but anyways, that's why they do it. And, and so I'm talking to my Arab guide and and I'm playing dumb and he says, oh, I don't know. They're crazy. You know, and I say, yeah, I don't know. I, don't know. I wonder why they would do that. All right. So that was just spoiler alert on Saul. So let's get into it. Let's look at it and, and see the story of Saul. Again, he starts well. He finishes very bad. Chapter 10, verse 1. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Is it not because the Lord has anointed you commander over his inheritance? So this is where Saul is anointed king, right? Above verse 27, you have a title there in your Bible, Saul anointed king. Now, I just want to clarify something because I think it's very important at this point. Um, um, in the Bible, you see men and women um, anointed with oil. So, so here, literally, I keep oil here. We do it because it's biblical. It's New Testament. It's Old Testament. We have a little anointing oil. We, we anoint people with oil because the Bible tells us to. The anointing oil is representative of the Holy Spirit. It's a reminder that the Holy Spirit is with you. Again, in the Old Testament, it was practiced. In the New Testament, it is, it's, it's taught by Paul in the New Testament to, to, to practice, and it's, it's biblical. So we use oil. So we see it all the way through the scriptures. King David is going to be anointed um, in, in, in not too long. And again, they're going to come with oil and they're going to pour oil on him, which is, is an anointing. Now, I, I just want to point out that even with this oil, you know, one of the things I say when I anoint people with oil oftentimes is, is I say, you know, the, the oil has no medicinal purposes. It's on sale at Walmart, you know, just to make a joke that it's not like special oil squeezed from holy olives in Israel, you know, like that there's something magical about the oil itself. The, 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 the magic is definitely not in the oil other than the fact that it's, it's, it's obedience to God's word that, that, that can create a magic, but it's your faith and it, and it's your believing. So the, the anointing Saul with oil, it, it's not what brought the anointing or the spirit of God or, um, is what makes people king. Now, when we anoint people with oil, very sim- similarly in church today, we have something that's called ordaining. And we ordain pastors, we ordain leaders. And, and when, when they, they come up, we'll have a ceremony, we'll have the elders come forward, we'll anoint them with oil, we'll lay hands on them, and, and we'll publicly recognize them as a pastor. Now, when I first became, um, a, I got a job as a pastor right out of college, I wasn't ordained for several years later. And during that time, um, the pastors and the staff and those there, um, you know, they're, they're recognizing whether they recognize the call of God on my life. Once they recognize a gift and a call of God on my life, then they ordain me. But the ordination doesn't make me called of God. It doesn't make me gifted of God. All ordination does, all that Saul is doing here, and when he puts this oil, I'm sorry, Samuel is doing here, when he puts this oil on Saul's head, is he's recognizing a call or a gift of God. So when we ordain somebody, all we're doing is the church is saying, uh, we're, we're watching, you know, Jay. Jay, Jay Pickering in there with the youth. And we've watched him now for years. And, and we all agree, we all see 
because we see the fruit in his life, we see the ministry, we agree that he has a call on his life to pastor, to, um, to teach. And so we're going to lay hands on him and we're going to ordain him and we're basically just going to say that we, we see, we recognize a gift and a call of God upon his life. That's all ordination is. Ordination is a piece of paper. You know, some people put a big deal upon ordination. And the reality is with, with, with being ordained a pastor or, a, or, or whatever, you, you could, any one of you guys right now, and I think maybe in about a half hour, you can go online and you can become an ordained minister. And it'll get a certificate, you'll get a piece of paper, you'll pay a price, and someone will ordain you from their organization through whatever, and you can. So anybody in here wants to be ordained? Have at it. Just get on Google when you get home and, and you can print your certificate before you go to bed tonight and, and you're ordained. Now, if you bring that certificate in here and you say, look, I'm, I'm ordained. Do I say, oh, wow, like you, you need to be pre- preaching next week. Like you're it, you know, like what the certificate, what does it change? <laughs> Absolutely nothing. Right. You know, I have a, I have a, a, a degree in theology have an associate's degree from Calvary Chapel and a bachelor's degree from Joshua Springs. And that means absolutely nothing. It doesn't mean, you know, that I'm gifted or called. Really what, what, what gives me the ability to do, to be, is a call and a gift of God. Teaching is a gift of God. It's absolutely just a gift. You know, and, and God, God, in the body of Christ within us, we all have gifts. Mine's not better than yours because I'm teaching or pastoring. Um, all gifts are, you know, they're all necessary. God's not, God doesn't judge you based on which gift he gave you. He judges you based on how faithful you are to that gift. So if your gift is to, you know, whatever, build the float for the 4th of July or drive the truck that pulls it, like just being faithful to that gift is, is what God eventually is going to reward us all for. And so, you know, Billy Graham, he, he had an amazing call. He also had a lot of pressure with this call, right? And the Bible says that, that you shouldn't seek to be a teacher because you have a higher, um, higher, what's, what's the word? I'm, I'm losing the word right now. Responsibility. You have a higher accountability um, as, as with certain calls. But, but the reward system is all the same. It's based on faithfulness. It's required of a servant that he be found faithful. So again, you know, and I, I want to tell you that in our church, just side note, um, we're, we're very careful on who we ordain and how we ordain. And, and we don't, you know, I've been here five years. We haven't ordained anybody. Um, we, we, we be care- we're careful with titles. It's very easy to hire somebody. It's very difficult to what? Fire somebody, right? And, and, and so, and the Bible says, do not lay hands on any man too quickly. So with Jay, you guys might hear me call him some from time to time youth pastor. I try to be careful that I say Jay is our youth leader. And, and technically, he's, he's a youth leader. And I think at some day, at some point, he will be a pastor. And, and he does, you know, the, thing that the, 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 the crazy thing is, he does all the work of a pastor right now. It doesn't change anything of what he does or who he is. He, does all the, he has all the responsibility, does all the work of a youth pastor. But again, just being careful in this area um, until there's a season, because it's very easy for us, for myself to lay hands on him and say, you're a youth pastor. And then if he completely goes South in six months, it's very difficult to say, you're not a youth pastor, <laughs> you're whatever, you know, and it, and it's difficult. So and the Bible says, again, do not lay hands on no man quickly. So, so we don't do that. And again, anointing with oil, ordination, all those things are just recognizing gifts. One more thing, and then I'll get off this. Um, 
for example, um, when, when we in the church are looking for um, people to, to serve in a ministry. I'll give you an example. Back home at Joshua Springs, we had one year, I don't know when this was, but we had a, a missions pastor, and it was a big job. The mission, because we had lots of different missionaries in our church. As a church, we like to do short-term missions and send out long-term missionaries and place long-term missionaries. So, you know, we'd like to try to schedule six or so short-term missions, maybe a weekend in Mexico. We had about three or four spots that we tried to focus on. We were in Russia. We were in Peru. We were in the Philippines. Um, and so we, we and then you know, Africa came later. But, and so we'd try to plan trips, you know, and get teams together spend two weeks out in the field. And there was somebody that oversaw all that stuff, that kind of had a vision, that went on the trips, that guided the trips, that led the trips, did all the paperwork, get the flights. He was our missions pastor. Well, he left. God called him, which always, this is what always happens to a mission pastor. He gets called to a mission field somewhere, and, like, he ends up staying. So it was Mike and Cheryl Yost, who are now in Idaho. Mike was our missions pastor for a lot of years, and Mike um, decided to, to move his family and stay with the rainbow um, orphanage that we had in the Philippines. And so at that time, we needed someone to fill that position. Now, what we did not do as a church and what we don't do as a church is put out on monster.com or on the web for, for people to fill out a resume and apply to become the new missions pastor. Some places do that, but that wasn't our style. Instead, what we did was we said, who in the church has the gift of a missions pastor. Who in the church is already doing the work of a missions pastor because that's what God told them to do. That's what they want to do. We haven't asked them to do it. It's what's in their heart. It's who they are. Who's already doing the work of a missions pastor? You know, Dick and, and, and uh, Suzanne Southard, they've been right next to Mike and Cheryl for the last five years, serving in missions, doing missions work. They love missions. They go on missions. They're constantly around every time, you know, helping Mike and Cheryl with the ministry of the missions pastor. They, they're already doing the work of a missions pastor. Let's ask them if they want to do it. And it's a natural fit. It's, it's something that God called and we recognized. And then we, at that point, we can either ordain or we can bring them in as missions pastors. Amen? Sorry, I know that was a long explanation, but I kind of important. So let's look at verse number two. We're only like 35 minutes in. When you have departed from me today, you will find two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zilzah. And they will say to you, the donkeys which you went to look for have been found. And now your father has ceased caring about the donkeys and is worried about you saying, what shall I do about my son? Now, again, if you weren't here last week, or if you missed this little detail, um, Saul's dad had two donkeys that were lost. And Saul sent, um, Saul's dad, who was a very rich guy, sent his son Saul, who was probably in his 30s at this time. I think if you, if you go through the narrative, Saul could have been somewhere 35, 36, 37 years of age. And, you know, again, in a patriarchal system as it would be in Israel, even to a big extent to this day, dad was still dad until he died. He was the patriarch. So he sent his son, but it wasn't like he sent his little teenager, you know, to go run an errand, his grown son, Saul, to go and find his donkeys that were lost. And so when he goes to find the donkeys, they get in this area and his, and his little buddy next to him last week um, says, there, there's a seer in this area or a prophet. And um, let, let's go ask him. Maybe he can help us find the donkeys. And they say, oh, we don't have a gift. What are we going to give him? And he said, oh, I got a couple of loaves of bread and we could figure it out because it was customary that they brought the man of God a gift when they came. And so they came and, and they found Saul 
Now, they never got a chance to ask him about the donkeys. They just start talking, and Saul starts basically telling. Um, I'm going to do that a lot in this study, you guys. I'm very sorry. I'm going to say Saul when I mean Samuel. I'm going to say Noah when I mean Moses. Um, but I, I meant to say Samuel the whole time. So Samuel is the prophet. Saul is the, the first king. So Saul is talking to Samuel, never gets a chance to ask about the donkeys. And now here Samuel brings it up um, almost to kind of prove who he is and, and show some, some validity here. And he says, oh, yeah, and by the way, those donkeys that you were looking for. And he's like, we didn't even mention the donkeys. How did you know we were looking for the donkeys? Oh, because you're the prophet and, you know, you have you, you hear the voice of God. And so he says, well, by the way, those donkeys that you were looking for, don't worry about them anymore. They've already been found. And now, um, you know, don't don't worry about that. A little quick note here. Um, God leads us supernaturally in a very natural way. Okay, Um, in the book of Revelation, it it talks about all these crazy um, signs and natural disasters and things that are going to happen. But if you look at them, oftentimes they could be very natural occurrences. For example, one of them looks possibly like a meteor is going to hit the earth. So you and I can read the Bible and know that, 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 that 2,000 years ago, God predicted that that was going to happen on that day. So we know that God supernaturally brought the meteor to hit the earth. But he did it in a very natural way. He used science. He put it in motion before the, the world began. And somewhere out there it is an is a asteroid that's going to take a left at some point and hit the earth. But God supernaturally did it. But if, if you're just here and, and you don't know and you don't follow and you don't pay attention, you could very easily just believe or just say, oh, that was, that was science. That was natural. That was Mother Nature. And, and so even though it's supernatural, God does it in a very natural way. You follow that? So here we have this supernatural um, kind of irritation in Saul's life. What's the irritation? He lost his donkeys. His crazy donkeys ran away. Now, God had a plan. It wasn't about the donkeys. It was about getting Saul to go where? To go see Samuel so Samuel could anoint him as king. But listen, in your life, in my life, we go through similar things. So when your donkeys run away, don't be all upset. Maybe God wants to anoint you king. And your donkeys are running away just so he can make you the next king. And, and, and so, you know, because we react that way sometimes. Oh, them stupid donkeys. God, if you really cared, you wouldn't. You know this trouble this causes me. Why would you let them donkeys run away? And, and I think we have an adverse reaction sometimes to, to neg- what are perceived as negative things in our lives when, when maybe God is doing something else. You know, maybe your car broke down for a good reason. Maybe you, you lost your job or, you know, for a good reason. And God's got something else or he's doing something different. You know, I was telling somebody, or I tell somebody, I was telling somebody today, but I, I think I tell somebody every day. Do you know to me what the number one theme of the Bible is? There's, there's, a, there's a big picture uh, about the, the whole Bible and what, what, why we read it, why we study it, why we, why, why we have the stories, why we're doing what we're doing tonight. And the big picture theme of the Bible is that you can trust God. I, I think, I really do believe that God wrote 66 books and lots of stuff, but in all 66 books with, with the intention of you knowing that you can trust God, God will take care of your life. God will be found faithful. God will show up. And all of these things of faith, you read them, you study them, you put them in your heart, you put them in your life. And what they're supposed to do is build within you the idea, the ability for you to, to, to know that you can trust God. And, and so that's, that's really the big picture thing. So when something goes bad, when our donkeys run away, 
Our, our response in life should be, and mine's not there, really. I'm not trying to say that I do it well, and, you know, I'm just like the rest of us. But our response should be to trust God. You lose your job. You lose your husband. You, you lose things in your life. I'm not, I'm not demeaning it. I'm not saying it's easy. But what I'm saying is that the, the, the wise person trusts God even during that situation, Right? And that's what the Bible is, is, is a lot of what it's about. It's, it's, it's helping you be able to trust God because you see all of the faithfulness and all the stories and all the things that help you trust the Lord. So these donkeys are lost, but it has nothing to do with that. And then um, in verse 3, it says, Then you shall go on forward from the there and come to the terebinth tree of Tabor. And there three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you, one carrying three goat, three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a skin of wine. Man, I wish God spoke to me this way. <laughs> Samuel's like, you know what's crazy is that, that guy that was carrying the three loaves of bread, like he could have got hungry on the way and ate one of them, and Saul got there and the guy only had two loaves of bread. But God spoke to Samuel supernaturally, and he knew exactly what was going to happen. And, and of course, all these circumstances could have changed. And, and, and Samuel is prophesying to Saul, telling him what he's going to find when he goes up there. And sure enough, by the time Saul gets there, he runs into these guys and they have three loaves of bread, wine. And what did the third guy have? One guy had wine, three loaves of bread and carrying three young goats and another carrying three loaves of bread and another carrying a skin of wine. And they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you shall receive from their hands. We've seen this in the New Testament, right? We see these similar things in the New Testament. Jesus tells the disciples where to, where to prepare for the Last Supper, right? And what does he say? He says, go, out, go into the old city, go into Jerusalem, and there you will find a man doing what? Anybody, nobody remembers? What's the man going to be doing that Peter and the guys were looking for that would let them know that was the guy they were looking for? Jesus said, you'll see a guy in the city. He'll be, what? Someone said it. Carrying a bucket of water. Jesus said, you'll see a guy and he'll be carrying a bucket of water. Now, what's interesting about that story is that men didn't carry water. That was women's work. And so they say, oh, there's a guy carrying a bucket of water. That's unusual. But again, what, what, if, what if Peter, like, had an emergency on his way up and he had to go find a tree? And because he had to go find a tree, the guy with the bucket of water finished his chore and he wasn't standing in that spot anymore. You know, it's so supernatural, right? Like God specifically designed it and everything had to work out, but the Lord knew it. It was, it was as if Samuel and the Lord, it's not as if, but basically they seen it happen in the future. And then God spoke that, that, that it was prophesied. And so these things happened exactly as God said, exactly as Samuel said. In verse five, four, it says, and they will greet you and you will give them, and they will give you two loaves of bread, which you shall receive from their hands. I guess they got to keep one. So again here, whenever you see bread and wine and goats, what does that remind you of? Bread and wine that I kicked all over the stage while we were praying. Oh my gosh, there's grape juice on this table that's staining it. Sorry. So I got some bread and wine up here. What does that remind us of? Whenever you see it in the Bible, bread and wine is a reminder of the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. The goat or the lamb is a picture of Jesus being slain. And so you see these types of things symbolic all the way through the Old Testament. Same thing with Melchizedek and, and, and Abraham, bread and wine, bread and wine. It's a picture of Jesus. It's a reminder of Jesus. And so here we have Saul who um, apparently and, and during this time is a type of Jesus. 
until he dupes us by the end of his life and turns into a real type of antichrist, as I've already explained. But here we see these things of, of representative of Jesus. And it says, after verse 5, that you shall come to the hill of God where the Philistines' garrison is. And it will happen when you have come there to the city that you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with stringed instruments, tambourines, flute, harp. And before them, they will be prophesying. Now, wait a minute. How is it that these people had all these instruments? Why is it that they just not had the only anointed instrument of God, which was the, um, the, the pipe organ? God, God forgot right here that these instruments were evil and ungodly. And so they, you know, they had the flute, the harp, stringed instruments, probably some guy playing a tambourine. And then the spirit of the Lord, verse six, will come upon you and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Very interesting that God was going to change the heart of Saul in this moment. And, and, and again, a prayer for you and I that God would turn us into another man. We need that at times. And let it be when these signs come to you that you do as the occasion demands. For God is with you. You shall go down before me to Gilgal. And surely I will come down to you and offer burnt offerings and make sacrifices of peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait till I come to you and show you what you should do. And so it was when he turned his back to go from Samuel that God gave him another heart. And all those signs came to pass that day. So again, these are amazing um, beginnings and signs of Saul. Right? We, I think, again, we touched this on Sunday, but create in me, God, a clean heart. You know, having a heart that, that God, God is, is creating and giving you a new heart and a clean heart. And when you become born again, you get, a, you get a new heart. You're a changed person. You're a new creation in Christ. The old you has died and passed away and no longer lives. And who you are is, is Christ in you and alive in Christ. And this is a desire of each one of us that God would give us a new heart, a clean heart. And so God is doing this amazing work in Saul's life. And you're looking at this. And again, if you don't read the end of the story, at this point, you're going, wow, you know, this guy is really blessed and, and, and is a real type of Jesus. And it says um, in verse number nine, so it was when he had turned, oh, another heart, verse 10, when they came there to the hill, there was a group of prophets to meet him. Then the spirit of God came upon him and he prophesied among them. And it happened when all those who knew him formerly saw that he, he indeed prophesied among the prophets that the people said to one another, what is this that has come upon the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? So Saul was there. The spirit of God came upon him. These traveling um, musicians and kind of like door to door carolers that, that were that were in the day. These prophets who were, ran around with instruments and singing worship songs and prophesying and doing ministry. And Samuel says Saul's going to run into him. And, and when he does, he begins to prophesy with them. And the people see it and they're like, what what's going on? Is is Saul, the son of Kish, now one of the prophets? And then in verse seven, twelve, it says, Then a man from there answered and said, But who is their father? Therefore it became a proverb, is Saul among the prophets. And when he had finished prophesying, he went to the high place. And then Saul's uncle said to him and his servant, Where did you go? And he said, To look for the donkeys. And when we saw they were nowhere to be found, we went to Samuel. And Saul's uncle said, Tell me, please, what Samuel said to you. So Saul said to his uncle, he told us plainly that the donkeys had been found, but about the matter of the kingdom, he did not tell him what Samuel said. So when Saul saw his family, his uncle, he, for whatever reason, 
does not tell him, oh yeah, and by the way, he anointed me the king of Israel. He leaves that detail out. Again, would, would, would seem, you could almost chalk this up as a humility in Saul. And maybe so, and rightfully so, that Saul had humble beginnings. It wasn't like, oh yeah, but guess what, uncle? You know, like Joseph, you're going to bow down to me. You and your, your wife and my dad and his wife, mom and all my brothers. I'm the king. I'm, I'm going to be the king. He just didn't mention the matter. So definitely a sign, a good sign of humility in the beginning part of Saul's life. And then it says in verse 17, Then Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah. And he said to the children of Israel, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt and delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms and from those who oppressed you. But you have today rejected your God who himself saved you from all your adversaries and your tribulations. And you have said to him, no, no, set a king over us. Now, therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your clans. So basically what's happening here, beginning in verse 17, is that Saul is giving kind of a farewell address. Now, it's a really cool farewell address. Saul, as I, I'm not Saul. I'm dying tonight, you guys. Samuel is going to give his farewell address. Now, it's a great farewell address. The interesting thing about this is that Samuel is going to, we're going to still see Samuel. He's going to start to fade off the pages. By the time David sins with Bathsheba, it's Nathan the prophet who comes to David and not Samuel because Samuel's gone. But by the time King um, David is anointed, it's still Samuel who is going to anoint David as king. But this is his like farewell address. And what is he he's doing? He's gather, he gathers all the tribes of Israel and he brings them up um, to a place, basically to church. And, and he's going to give them a sermon and, and he's, he tells them, you know, the, the status of, of where they are and that they, they weren't supposed to have a king. But nevertheless, they wanted a king. They asked for a king and God gave him a king. And then um, as we pick it up at verse 20, it says, and when Samuel had caused all the tribes of Israel to come near, the tribe of Benjamin was chosen. And when he had called the tribe of Benjamin to come near by their families, the family of Matri was chosen. And Saul, the son of Kish, was chosen. But when they sought him, he could not be found. So the thing was, they, they chose a Hollywood king. They, um, you know, they, again, with Saul, he was... Seven, some people believe seven feet tall. He could have been six, eight, six, ten, six, seven. The dude was tall regardless. Um, you know, he said he was shoulder, head and shoulders taller than any other man in Israel. So if you're standing, I don't know, if you're six foot and you're standing next to a guy and you're coming up to here, it, it's, it's, he, he's pretty close to seven feet. So t- Saul was a, was a big, tall dude. Not only that, the Bible says he was very handsome. And I think if the Holy Spirit records that the guy's handsome, he probably looked like Rico Suave, right? He probably had it in spades in the in the handsome department, you know. And so he's super handsome, which now, again, you can be super tall and super handsome and have, you know, a body like Hercules. And it's not going to help you if you're dumb as a box of rocks, right? Or if you, you know, you got no charm and no charisma. Something. If you're playing basketball, now being seven feet and chiseled, or if you're playing football, those are good qualities to have. But not necessarily, you know, just being tall and handsome doesn't necessarily help you be successful in life. But this is what they chose. They, you know, they chose this. This is what they wanted. When we get to King David, it's completely the opposite. The Bible says that he was he was ruddy. Which means like 
I, I'm not sure, but I guess that he was like red hair, freckle face, you know, like kind of rough looking, ruddy. Um, and then in verse 22, it says, Therefore, they inquired of the Lord, Lord further, has the man come here yet? And the Lord answered, there he is hidden among the equipment. So I, I think mixed opinion on, on this. You know, the narrative right now is that Saul, and rightfully so, right, the narrative is rightfully so, that Saul was humble in the beginning. And some people say the fact that he didn't show up here um, is a sign of his continued humility in the beginning. I've heard, I've heard another pastor say, I think Chuck Smith says that this is really the first glimpse into the fact that Saul um, wasn't all that he was cracked up to be because it wasn't humility. It was, it was really a weakness because he was called of God and he didn't step up. He was called of God and he didn't show up. And, and, and just as much as, as pride is a problem, you know, and, and humility is good, false humility is just as bad. And, and, and not doing, you know, we talk about sins of omission and sins of commission, right? Two different things. You, you sin because you got drunk. And the Bible says, do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation. So you committed a sin by getting drunk. Um, or God told you to go up to somebody in Walmart and give them $20. God told you to go up to somebody in Walmart and ask them if they're okay. Ask them if you can pray for them. And you were embarrassed, and so you didn't go and ask him if you could pray for him. You didn't go and minister to him. So it's, it's, it's a sin, but it's not a sin that you, of commission. We call that a sin of omission because you sinned not by what you did, but, but, but by what you didn't do, right? By failing to do something, you sinned. And so it, it can be just as bad. And again, if God calls you to do something, do it. God calls you to step out, step out. If God's telling you and you know in your heart, you have confirmation, you have unity with your wife, with your family, and, and, and God has spoken to you, it's just as much of a sin for you not to do it as it is, you know, to, to, to do other sins. So be obedient. And that was kind of the issue here. So then we get to verse 23 and it says, so they ran and brought him from there. And when they stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, do you see him? Well, how can we miss him? He stands out in a crowd. He's taller than head and shoulders, taller than any other person in the crowd and all of Israel. And Samuel said to all the people, do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? that there is no one like him among all the people. So all the people shouted and said, long live the king. You guys thought that England coined that, right? Long live the king. Nope. That's thousands of years old. It started in Israel. And we, you know, you hear it used to this day, long live the king. There's actually another translation. That's kind of our English translation. You see a little in your margin there. The actual saying in Hebrew is more technically, may the king live. May the king live. But they both, they both mean exactly the same thing. May the king live. Long live the king is the one that has made it through, through time. And then Samuel explained to the people the behavior of royalty and wrote it in a book and laid it up before the Lord. And Samuel sent all the people away, every man to his house. And Saul also went home to Gibeah. A valiant man went with him whose hearts God had touched. But some rebels said, how can this man save us? So they despised him and they brought him no presents, but he held his peace. And so again, another sign of humility, 
He was the king at this point, anointed before all the nation of Israel. Everybody knew it. Samuel said, do you see him? Everybody could see him. He's the king. And at the time, they're like, we, we, we don't recognize him. We don't, some didn't like him. They said, Who, who's Saul that he should be king over us? And they brought him no gifts. They didn't come and honor him as the new king. And it says that Saul held his peace. So again, he could have at this point, he had the authority and the power off with their heads type of thing, but, but he didn't, uh, a definite sign of humility. Remember that verse because next week when we get to the, the rest of the story, we're going to find a place where Saul's going to have this great victory. He's going to deliver the people. And then a lot of people are going to say, where are those people that said, who is Saul as king? Bring him here. Let's kill them all. Like how fickle people are and how fast their opinions are going to change. Amen. Let's stand. We're going to do chapter uh, 11 through 20 next week. (laughs) Since we're (laughs) supposed to do two or three a night and we're lucky to finish one. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you and we thank you, Lord Jesus, so much for your word. And Jesus, I thank you for the lessons that we learn. And Lord, I I pray for each of us that, um, Lord, as we read the word of God, um, you know, as we spend time just reading the narrative and the history that there's lessons, there's, there's, um, Things in there, God, that are designed to encourage us to, to know that we can trust you, to see your faithfulness. God, help us in our lives to trust you. And Lord, I pray for each one that's in here tonight, regardless of where we are, what we're going through, that whether it's, it's a blessing, maybe we're in a season of great blessing. Maybe we're in a season of great trial. Maybe we're in a season of great struggle. And Lord, I pray that regardless whether it's a mountaintop or a valley, that we would know and we would believe that we can trust you and that you will take care of us that you've adopted us, you've redeemed us, you've forgiven us, you've loved us, you cared for us, you predestined us, and on and on and on because you care. And God, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. God bless you guys.